Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Yael Levy, who is the author of um, Chick TV, Anti-Heroines and Time Unbound. So thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for having me. I'm excited. So can you start by talking a little bit about how this book came about and how you started writing about Chick TV? So actually, um, my interest in the intersection between feminist theories and uh, television form and characterization has been a it's 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 a long time interest of mine, and already in my master's thesis, I was writing about characters of um, housewives and constructs of repetition, and then I realized that I wanted to kind of expand this project and talk about characterization of women in general and textual temporalities in general. So, kind of looking at television form specifically in terms of its play with time and temporality. And the project was honing in on these two constructs, on temporality, textual and televisual temporality, and women characters. And then throughout my work, I realized that one of the most important things was the the very hot discourse about complex TV. You know, the seminal, really fascinating book by Jason Mattel. And I realized that many of the examples... Uh, used in in terms of this discourse were about uh, antiheroes, namely men antiheroes, and uh, uh, specifically in texts that I would call masculine texts, you know, that has kind of a masculine orientation in terms of genre, action-oriented, or crime. And I know that today there's a lot more talk and, and research about women characters and um, 
specifically about anti-heroines, Isabel Pinedo and Hagelin and uh, Silverman. And I have many names that I kind of recall throughout the book, but I really wanted to look at the beginning of the 21st century. The beginning of the 21st century in terms of what people have termed as the age of both anti-heroes and the age of complex temporality, of temporal play. And I wanted to go back to these years and show how uh, quote-unquote feminine texts, that is texts that are rooted in soap opera, that are about dialogue more than action, uh, the domestic sphere more than the public sphere, women's issues, etc., these texts who are often seen as inferior and and one of the you know one one of the arguments that not i'm making many feminist scholars before me are making that the the inferiority perceived in these texts is often correlated with with the fact that they're specifically oriented toward women or are considered women's texts or feminine quote unquote texts And so I kind of wanted to delve into these texts and show how these are complex in and of themselves. They have sometimes complexities in the text that are different from the narrative complexities of the masculine text, the so-called masculine text. And also that uh, these complex characters of women, these anti-heroines, are also um, not less complex than the male characters that we can see in early 21st century, but that we need a a, a kind of a different hermeneutics to look into these characters because their complexities or anti-heroinisms, as I call them, sometimes appear differently than they do with men characters. And so the main issue is that if men's, if anti-heroes are kind of play with our alignment, that they're the protagonists and we identify with them, but then they kind of push back against identification, usually through moral ambiguity. But the thing is that when you look into these pushbacks, many of them are resistances to uh, gender constructs. I mean, these are men who are not necessarily family-oriented, who are not necessarily protectors or the moral heroes that you would expect a protagonist to be. And so in this sense, I find that many early 21st century anti-heroines kind of push back against gender constructs as women, that they're not nurturers or they're not uh, mothers, they're not uh, sexually objectified as they should quote unquote should be, etc. So I wanted to look at this intersection between the resistance in characterization, namely women characters who resist these patriarchal um, limitations, who go against the social order, and the resistance of the texts who resist linearity or progressivity and what uh, Elizabeth Freeman coined as chrononormativity. They're not normative in terms of their temporality. So they play with temporality. They go back, they stall, they expand. And so these two forms of resistance, characterizational resistance and temporal resistance, 
kind of went together in my research of chick TV. Because I talked about chick TV as this subgenre of, you know, the continuation of chick lit and chick flicks, kind of texts that are oriented toward women. Again, more minded and focused on dialogue and women's issues and family and romance, etc. But not to look at them only as kind of the guilty pleasure fluff that culture usually looks at, at them as, but more looking into the complexities that they might suggest, again, both in terms of, of their structures and in terms of their characterizations. So I think that was kind of my, my interest in going into these these constructs that are very much in the discourse and looking at them from a feminist perspective. And can you talk a little bit before we like really get into um, the heart of the text, can you talk a little bit about those, um, what, what, um, what shows you chose and maybe why, right. Why you chose the ones you did. Yes, thanks for that. So yeah, obviously I have many shows and and, and using that um, category of Chick TV is quite wide. And, you know, I have a specifics in terms of mainly themes and, and narrative construction, but I wanted to look at different texts in terms of, of um, not only generic tendencies, but also how they're built. So that would be both texts that are from the very beginning of the 21st century. I think my first text is Six Feet Under, which started in, in 2001. But Six Feet Under is, I, 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 I look at it as a chick TV because it's very family oriented and, and the women characters are very elaborate. And we have a lot of discussion of family and sexuality and the domestic sphere. But of course, we have also men's characters, and there's a debate whether the the actual protagonist is the is the white man or not. But it's often been seen as a quality TV show, and so I just I wanted to look at it as a not necessarily inferior text in terms of the discourse, but why the fact that it does kind of direct itself toward chick TV orientation has its own complexities that are different from its its complex TV narrative that is related with its masculinities of the text. So, and also it's it's an ensemble show, it's a quality show, which it's, it's HBO, it's very early 21st century. So that's kind of its own category. And then the next would be um, Desperate Housewives, which started in 2004. And it's more, I think people would feel more comfortable with kind of terming it chick TV because it's very soapy in its orientation and the women are definitely the protagonists. We have an ensemble of, of women who are the main characters and also the fact that again, it's an ensemble, but only of women. I mean, the men characters are, are more marginal. They're minor in, in this text and also kind of the play with the subgenre of, you know, noir TV or uh, suspense. So it kind of plays with that. Um, then I have Grey's Anatomy, which is also very soapy. It started in 2005. And again, here we have an ensemble, but also kind of a both men and women ensemble. And it's interesting in terms of genre because it's a hospital show. So 
initially uh, medical dramas were considered more masculine television, but we can see how in over the years they've been kind of intersected with soaps and we have narratives that kind of play specifically in Grey's Anatomy, you don't see the domestic sphere very often, but there's a uh, um, very clear demystification, I would say, of the workplace. It becomes kind of a, a family workplace, the romances, the it seems as if there's sibling rivalry sometimes. It's very a, a family kind of relationship in the workplace. And then I also I also discuss um, reality TV, specifically docu soaps. So in terms of uh, chronology, the next text would be uh, the Real Housewives, which started in 2006. It's a huge franchise, of course. There are various branches to this franchise. And I discuss many of them when I talk about seriality, but also it's very soapy, very chick TV in terms of its orientation, women in the forefront, um, discussions of children and family and sexuality and women's desires, and it's very aspirational. So I think you can see already that there's similarities and differences to the texts. Then I discuss Nurse Jackie, from 2009, I think she would be the most um, directly uh, discussed as an anti-heroine because she's also kind of dabbling in moral ambiguity. But interestingly, this is a single protagonist-led uh, Chick TV text. We have Nurse Jackie and the front. She's the protagonist and the rest of the cast kind of organizes around her narrative and um, Sister Wives from 2010 onward, um, which is also a docu-soap, women ensemble, a polygamist family. And the women, even though the man is kind of very, uh, his decisions rule, and there's a very patriarchal or, uh, organization of the text, the women are very dominant, their decisions, their lives, their issues, their desires, etc. And then Girls from 2012, uh, which is also, I think, I would debate whether it's a single protagonist-led or uh, an ensemble, but the, the girlish issues are very much in, in the front. And then lastly, from 2013, Being Mary Jane, which is also a single protagonist-led uh, drama and the life of the protagonist Mary Jane herself is very much in the forefront her uh, conflicts regarding work and life matters um, I, I didn't I didn't discuss this but in some of the the shows that I uh, chose also kind of racial and ethnic issues come about and in being Mary Jane it's very it's very dominant because Mary Jane herself is an African-American woman so her conflicts with her, the way that she's constructed by society as an African-American woman who is very talented in what she does, her romantic conflicts, her conflicts with her family. So all these are kind of very important to the way that the text is constructed, both as, again, uh, a feminine text, a chick TV text, and in terms of, of the protagonist herself, as she is 
the protagonist in terms of identification and alignment of viewers, but she pushes back against easy identification. This is a quote by Emily Nussbaum, by the way, when she talked about anti-heroines, she discusses how they push back against easy identification. So Mary Jane does just that when she's kind of playing with her role as a, as a single woman. Uh, there's infidelity, there's conflicts again with the family. So all the texts that I chose are texts that have chick TV orientation in terms of genre and narrative are important in terms of the, uh, the way that women characters are in the front, they're foregrounded, their issues and interests and desires are the most dominant in the texts. And uh, I also kind of wanted to have, again, both a variety in terms of the years in which these series have started. So you can see that I, I kind of go for the first decade and a half of the 21st century to kind of look at the beginning, but also shows from different years within this decade and a half and that have kind of even though they're all chick, when I look at them, they have different hybrids of other genres to kind of look at how this works in terms of genre, in terms of narrative constructs, etc. So you've divided your book into four chapters um, that get at some of what you've talked about already, but I'd love to delve a little bit deeper into those areas. So the first is resistance. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about that chapter, what you're trying to do in that and, and what you kind of, you've talked about it a little, but a little more about the idea of resistance. Yes. Th- thanks. Um, so resistance, I think the, the fact that it's kind of the, the first chapter bears the name resistance, the title resistance is, is, both the, due to the fact that resistance is in many ways what kind of drives the, the, the book itself. Because everything I discuss is about feminist resistance and narrative resistance. So the first chapter kind of tries to look into this intersection of narrative resistance and feminist resistance. And the way that I do it in the first chapter is kind of I go into, I, I would say, the, the sub-episodic layer of of the TV series that I chose. So I look at kind of literary devices that break the narrative and delay it. I look at, for example, story within story, uh, reverie and fantasy. And in the docu-soap genre, I look at uh, confessionals that kind of delay the progression of the narrative and work into it this kind of sometimes indirect resistance. It's, it's resistance... Uh, first of all, because of the fact that it delays the narrative, it kind of goes, it kind of sidesteps the narrative for a second to say something about the narrative. If it's a story within story, it's kind of the the way that the story within story as a sub-episodic unit kind of play with the framework of what it's, what it's uh, integrated into. It's an intradiegetic unit that kind of says something about the the story as a whole. And the same goes for reverie and fantasy. So I I wanted to look at these these units in terms of what they say both, again, about the narrative and about the character. Because my argument in this chapter is that what happens in these sub-episodic intradiegetic units is that 
there's a, an, I would say, an anti-heroinization of the character. These are the moments that there's something exposed about the character, about the woman character, which in the chapter I discuss how it's different from examples about men characters, that says something about the story that goes against the story sometimes. It kind of pushes back again, pushes back against the identification that the protagonist deserves in a sense. Whereas uh, sometimes we see in men's texts that these intra-diegetic units mostly work to fill in gaps, to kind of add into the story that is already going on in the framework of the narrative. So they kind of add to it or um, make it, you know, more expansive or, or, or more coherent. Whereas in the women's stories that I look at in the 21st century chick TV texts, they're often kind of combated with the, 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 the enveloping narrative kind of around these intradiegetic uh, moments. So this is, again, the first unit that I think exemplifies how these two things collide, how, Feminist characterization and resistance in the anti-heroine works with the feminist uh, narrative. Even if the this 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 um, feminist resistance in the narrative in the in the temporal delay in the temporal resistance, it could be indirect. It could be hidden and subtextual. But when I look into I do I I do this close reading of these units. I see the kind of through, I would say, the cracks of the text. You see these resistances that kind of restructure how you see the the character and kind of anti-heroinize her in a sense. Yeah, you throughout this, right, you talked about you did it in different ways. But so like one example is for me, I thought was really interesting was Six Feet Under and really thinking about the fantasies, the men's fantasies versus the women's fantasies and how the men's fantasies were more those serious topics, right? Um, But that did not make the women's fantasies that had to do with more relationship and family any less serious or important, even though we value it that way. Yeah, this is is going back to... Uh, to Virginia Woolf, she talked about how the men's stories about war are considered uh, superior to women's stories about family and 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 talk, for example, right? So this inferiority of women's texts, of course, I, I in many ways, I I would like to kind of. Um, orient my text in the tradition of, of many feminist writers who kind of took these women's texts that are considered inferior and showed how they're complex in and of themselves. I'm talking about melodramas and women's romance and, of course, soap operas, right, from Annette Kuhn and, and Tanya Modleski and many other feminist writers who kind of discussed the fact that the mere inferiority perceived in culture for these texts is in and of itself, I would say, misogynistic, right? Because it, it kind of makes the fact that it's about women to be inferior. And so these uh, feminist scholars looked into these texts to find the complexities within them and show how they might be different from what we perceive as superior or, as you said, serious, right? From, from 
what is perceived differently, but not necessarily less complex. So my example in Six Feet Under is to show that even these fantasies of Ruth, the mother, for example, who's a housewife and she sees her house differently in her dreams, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not political, right? That the fact that sometimes culture tries to depoliticize these issues as fluff or as mundane doesn't necessarily make it so. And I think that the fact that the political issues with men's characters and their conflicts within themselves are much more outwardly shown in, for example, Six Feet Under, right? We have a character who struggles with his homosexuality versus his Christianity or a character, a man, a man character who struggles with his desire for connection versus his desire for freedom and self-reliance. And, and many of the conflicts of these women, of course, all the, all the characters in this shows have their conflicts kind of manifested in their dreams and um, in these fantastic scenes in which they converse with the dead, etc. But the women's fantasies or reveries or talks with the uh, deceased people often kind of politicize the the more hidden or subtextual conflicts that are shown in the text itself. They kind of, they force them to, to, to meet them rather than go with the conflicts that are already presented in the text as we, as we often see with the men's issues. I hope that was clear. <laughs> yes, completely right. And it sort of leads into um, that your your second chapter, right? Deviation, which I found really fascinating at looking at not only flashbacks and flash forwards, but that flash sideways, right? Those ideas of how they do play with time or freeze time. or So could you talk a bit about that and what's going on in that chapter and those ideas of time and I, I, would, I would use this opportunity to kind of I, I I'm not sure that I said this before but the 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 way that the chapters are are built is via these temporal layers so the first one is resistance in the subepisodic layer and then deviation as you mentioned kind of focuses on the the episodes themselves what happens in the episodes not in the subepisodic level so I talk, as you mentioned, about uh, flashbacks and flash forwards and flash sideways. And then in the next chapters, in chapters three and four, I talk about serialization, the resistance of the serial form as a whole. And then in chapter four, about intertextual repetition. So it goes from the subepisodic to the episodic to the intratextual to the intertextual. So this is how I kind of look at these resistances and, and the intersection, again, between characters and form. And so to go into the second chapter, Deviation, I, I, termed it, I titled Deviation because if the first example, the, the, the intradiegetic literary devices resist and then the text could just go on, with the example of Deviation, with flashbacks and flash forwards, I kind of suggest uh, resistance that deviates from the trajectory of the original text. So what I do in this chapter 
is I look at examples. I My main kind of study case is Gray's Anatomy, and I look at chapters that are dominantly constructed around uh, flashbacks and flash forwards and flash sideways. And I kind of try to show how from these moments on, the characters that undergo these flashbacks or flash forwards or sideways are in in many ways anti-heroinized more so than they are before them. So these temporal deviations work to characterize these women. So um, you wanted me to focus more on the flash sideways. So I, I do, I, I focus specifically on this episode that goes sideways. And interestingly enough, in, in, in Grey's Anatomy, what happens in this episode is that if the, I, I, I address like these a few um, main women characters from the, from the series who are in a sense, anti-heroines, itch in her own way. They kind of, at least in, in the, in the conscious way, right? In the reflexive way that they discuss their anti-heroinism, their resistances. Some of them are not into uh, being, uh, going into feminine performance in terms of family. Some are not interested in going into feminine performance in terms of sexuality or work, et cetera, et cetera. And then what happens in the Flash Sideways episode is that they they move from anti-heroinism into either heroinism or villainousness. So again, one of the arguments of the book is that many, many times that women exhibit anti-heroic characteristics, they're, they're deemed as villainesses rather than anti-heroines. And so what happens in this episode is that uh, Meredith, the protagonist, for example, becomes this so-called heroine as she is very reminiscent, I would say, even of, of, of 1950s sitcom housewife mother characters. Even in terms of performance, she starts wearing pink cardigans and her hair looks differently and she's very demure and... Um, and Christina, for example, is villainized. She becomes this uh, misanthropic, hated person who she has these kind of touches of this characterization in, 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 the, in the series itself, but these are expanded and, and become much more dominant in, in the episode. And then I show how the the temporal resistances of the flash sideways work to kind of bring them back into anti-heroinism through their meeting each other, the heroine and the villainous kind of anti-heroinize each other via the way that the text is constructed, via the flash sideways that kind of plays with their characterization. And again, the men characters in the flash sideways undergo very different characterization changes, right? They don't move specifically in terms of character, even if they hide the characters that they really are. But the women really undergo changes. They kind of pinpoint and uh, emphasize their anti-heroinisms that persist after this episode, even more so than they did before it. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah and so from that right so you you know look at those flash forwards flash sideways in these real um in the scripted television and then you move into what i i find one of the most fascinating um reality television franchises that we have had right that's still going strong um and right is the real housewives and that idea of serialization so could you um well let's start with the idea of serialization and then we can talk about the real housewives i just want i just want to say that i completely agree it's fascinating going strong and i that's that's what led me i started with this franchise because i was fascinated and also there's writing about this franchise, because I think that many scholars are fascinated by its popularity, but also by the way that it's constructed. I mean, I think that, again, in terms of of my presumption in the book is to kind of say the fact that these texts are so popular among women must mean something other than the fact that they're fluffy. I mean, they must mean they must have some complexities. They must have something that draws identification and complexities. And I think that many scholars before me have, have written about this. And my interest in this, in this franchise was to kind of use it as a, a main study case in the chapter because it has a, a very fascinating form. It's a reality franchise. And nowadays we have... I mean, franchise, of course, we see in movies and scripted television, right, from CSI and and uh, NCIS. But also after Real Housewives, we've seen um, Million Dollar Listings and Basketball Wives. We have several, but this is by far the largest, most expansive franchise in reality TV. And again, extremely popular. And... Uh, my interest in it was to kind of look at the serial form of this text because it's, in a sense, uh, serialized serialization. Because each um, installment has its own progression, but the franchise as a whole, and this is mainly what I did in this chapter, the franchise as a whole has these interconnections between the episodes. And what I looked at was the way that uh, they were aired, which I know that today we have uh, streaming and many people don't watch when the episodes are aired. But 
it was very interesting to me because I think that this this franchise is a world in and of itself, right? We have talk shows that discuss these women at the same time what happened in yesterday's episode and what happened yesterday in, I don't know, Luanne de la Sepp's life yesterday. So in many ways, the diegetic and the extra diegetic converge in the series. And not only do they converge, they also kind of necessitate uh, on-time viewing. Because if you delay viewing, you might not be in the know of the gossip of this expansive franchise. So I do think that in terms of this series, um, linear viewing is still part of the experience. But also I wanted to discuss the text itself to kind of see how it's configured in broadcasting and how um, the way that the text is dispersed affects uh, both themes and characterization. So what I did in this chapter was I, I looked at the the ties between episodes that were aired over the same week from different installments. And what I wanted to show was that in some ways similar to what this the, the story within story, for example, does, that these episodes complete each other. I started with the, the, the first example when... when um, when the Real Housewives uh, became a franchise rather than a monolithic series was when the first installment, the Real Housewives of Orange County, became a part of both Orange County and uh, uh, New York City. So the first time that they aired was uh, the, the preview special of New York City was immediately after the Real Housewives of Orange County. So they were aired one after the other as if they're part of the same text, which in many ways they are because they're aired on the same channel, produced by the same company. They have a similar mise-en-scene and narrative uh, design. And of course, the, you know, the, the, the plot premise of these highly aspirational uh, bourgeois women uh, more or less in urban uh, uh, environments when it comes to Orange County, but they're urbanized in terms of their, again, they're aspirational and they have uh, these uh, socialite uh, tendencies. And so there are similarities between the texts, but of course they don't really uh, interconnect in terms of the narrative because these women are not part of the same cast. They're not part of the same ensemble. So the Orange County uh, episode ended trying to kind of tie in what happened in the episode and bring the season into a close. And then it restarted the narrative with the New York City preview special with new women, with new characters. And here I draw on Tanya Modleski's writing about soap operas when she shows that soap operas are built to never answer questions, but more always kind of introduce new questions into the text and stretch the the temporal narrative. And she showed how this stretching is, is resistant in and of itself in terms of its feminist resistance because it resists order, it resists resolution, 
And here I wanted to show how this resistance comes about in the serial form, in, in, in this franchise as a whole, how the way that the franchise as a whole is constructed and configured works in a form of characterizational resistance and narrative resistance, which is not necessarily seen in each of the installments by itself. So I, in a sense, I wanted to show how this serialized seriality or this uh, intratextual connection between the installments also works to anti-heroinize these, these women characters in the Real Housewives franchise. No, I mean, I like I found it really fascinating when you were to, when you were talking about it there, that idea that they would air like three shows, you know, it used to be, you know, then it'd be this yes. show and then this show and this show. And just thinking about that and, you know, and thinking about also how they um, use location and, you know, many are focused on East and West Coast, but there is also some Middle America um, and thinking about where these women sort of live and exist and how that kind of plays out into creating a larger kind of narrative and storyline throughout. Yes, and of course, these uh, these differences, which I think you're right in terms of the locale and uh, the, the spatiality of how these uh, uh, installments are designed is very important to the differences between them, right? So the, the, there are many similarities, but the difference is, I think the, the most important difference would be the locale and the, the way that these women have their relationships with the places where they live, whether it's more or less urban, whether it's more or less coastal, as you say. And of course, we have also racial differences between the installments that are also kind of connected to where these women live. And these differences play into one another. We have the, 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 the white installments, and then we have uh, other installments who are kind of have more dominant women of color in them. For, for example, of course, Atlanta is mostly black women. So the way that you see Atlanta episodes aired on the same week as Beverly Hills episodes plays into how motherhood is, um, is, is architectured in these episodes and how uh, women's friendship is and how anger is. You know, I discuss a lot anger in this episode as, as kind of a form of anti-heroinism. These women that resist the need to be ladylike or demure or silent in how they express their anger. And you see how these episodes kind of back each other episodes that were aired in the same week that in many ways allows women to express their anger. Right. So these, um, these commonalities work with these differences to kind of have each installment contribute to the way that the other is 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 more resistant both in terms of characterization and and in terms of structure and narrative and and so your your fourth chapter your final chapter is on the idea of rewriting um, and what that looks like so could you talk a bit about the idea of rewriting and then um, we can talk a bit about well desperate housewives <laughs> Yes, of course. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so the fourth episode is kind of if I had 
subtextual or sub-episodic and then episodic temporality and then serial temporality, the fourth kind of goes out of the serial form to look at intertextual temporality. And I discuss repetitions between uh, Chick TV texts and between anti-heroines in Chick TV texts. And I titled the chapter Rewriting because I wanted to offer that if the first chapter delays resistance, um, I'm sorry, delays progression, and then the second deviates from it, and the third kind of serializes it in terms of um, serializing performances and misperformances of femininity and kind of the resistance is, 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 is a series in and of itself. So this repetition between intertexts of anti-heroines in Chick TV kind of works to rewrite the the time of history to to coin uh, to to use uh, Julia Kristeva's term the time of history which is a masculine progressive you know beginning and ending kind of uh, temporality and the system of um, this uh, resisting repetitions of chick TV and anti heroines accumulates and becomes as bolstered into this I would say like an army of Czech TV anti-heroines that together, when I read through them together, they have this kind of force to to take all these forms of resistances into this new order, this Czech TV alternative order in which uh, complexity looks a bit different and um, anti-heroinism looks a bit different. And not only that the anti-heroines that look like the men anti-heroines that are morally ambiguous, uh, self-reliant, mis- uh, misanthropic haters, but also a nurse or a housewife whose resistances can be subtextual or intratextual. But when read together, they have this kind of force to, to offer a form of resistance that was maybe not as conspicuous when we looked at these texts in, in early 21st century, but when I look at them together, I see this kind of bulk of texts that, that offer a feminist resistance, again, through characterization and narrative. And, and you sort of, you alluded to it, but one of the things in this chapter that you really look at is sort of how... Um, sex and sexuality and sort of sexual prowess plays out in these texts. And I'm really thinking about, right. um, The right. And and how that the married woman who is having, you know, extramarital affairs versus the single woman who is sleeping with men who are having extramarital affairs. So can you talk a little bit about how that kind of plays out and how you, what you see is important about really examining that and looking at that? Yes. So I, I didn't um, mention this, but I look and at the anti-heroines in the text um, through uh, four continua, I, I address um, uh, the domestic or familial continuum and the sexual continuum, right, from the Madonna-Hor dichotomy in, where women are supposed to be uh, family-oriented and domesticated and but sexual in terms of providing for family but not, not, not necessarily have a sexual subjectivity. 
And I have these two minor continua, the intellectual continuum and the class continuum that I'd say are not necessarily feminine performance related, but they kind of, they work to police the other two. So in, in the fourth chapter, in, um, when I address intertextuality and rewriting, I look at women who are um, overacting or uh, they have an overexemplifying of sexuality or domesticity. And so I, in the example that you discussed in, in sexuality, I look at women who try to um, articulate their sexual desires, but don't want, and when I say they don't want, I, I also mean that the texts don't want, right? It's not necessarily also only the volition of the character itself, but also the way that the text forms this volition. So these women or these texts, they want to express sexual subjectivity of women without, on the one hand, hypersexualizing them and turning them into these uh, Jezebels or the whores of the Madonna whore dichotomy, but at the same time not silencing their, their sexuality, which is often something that has happened in the history of, of women characters in television, that they were either prowess or silenced. And so what I what happens in these 21st century texts, television texts, is that you often see a kind of uh, reflexive intertextuality. These texts that are aware of how women's sexuality is designed. And the example that you discussed in, in Desperate Housewives, I show how we have the the hypersexualized women, she's she is also incidentally, of course not incidentally, she is also the villainess because and, and part of characterizing her as a villainess is to show how uh, sexually, um, I would say, quote unquote, promiscuous she is. And then we have the heroine who is the perfect housewife. And part of the fact that she's a heroine is to show how the only expression of sexuality for her is when it's oriented toward family and toward her monogamous partner. Edie is the villainess and Susan is a heroine because she direct all her sexuality toward family and monogamy. And then Gabrielle, the character uh, of a semi-housewife, she's a housewife because she's, she's, she doesn't have a job in the, in the public sphere, but she, she is very resistant of any domesticity or housewifery characterization. And she doesn't want kids at the beginning of the series. And again, part of this ambiguity is also uh, manifested in her sexuality. Because on the one hand, she loves her partner and she's a sexual subject. But then on the other hand, um, she feels frustrated from her marriage and she starts uh, an affair outside her marriage. And then I wanted to show how the fact that Gabrielle has this affair and despite the fact that she is... uh, is, uh, she practices infidelity, if you will. Um, identification with her character is is not damaged. It's it becomes more complex, even, 
And the way that the text constructs it is it kind of gives her focalization and justification for how she feels, but also kind of punishes her when, when her affair is found out. So there's this complexity that kind of works between these. On the one hand, the text is very conservative in terms of the heroine versus the villainous. She is sexually, quote-unquote, promiscuous, and the other is sexually uh, demure and reserved and not excessive, in a sense. But then there's Gabby. There's this character of Gabrielle, and she is anti-heroinized through intertextualizing with these two other characters, but also through intertextualizing with characters of both the past who were punished for their sexuality and also characters of texts that are um, released at the same time. Other 21st century texts that address sexuality, such as Six Feet Under, who is very reflexive about the way that the sexual subjectivity of, of its women characters is constructed. And, these, and, and, and again, here I talk about how intertextuality is part of what anti-heroinizes these women characters whose sexuality is neither you know, perfect and only family-oriented or excessive and, and over-sexual uh, characterization of these women. So throughout your book, right, so you're looking at these areas and all of this. And so what you get to this conclusion, and so it's this idea of reclaiming this idea of chick for TV, right? That's sort of your, that you know, what you call your conclusion. And so could you talk uh, a little bit about that. Like, why is this? And you, you know, you've talked throughout, but like, what is it after looking at these, after thinking about these texts, why do we need to really care about this? Right. You know, what, <laughs> I mean, I know why, yeah, but yeah, you know, no, like, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I agree because um, I think that what I'm trying to say in the conclusion is, as you said, in many ways, this is something that I, that I discussed throughout the book, but I think that why we need to care about this, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic question because I think that why we need to care about it is, again, to look at how uh, social categorization of culture sometimes becomes cemented. And, and we need to kind of defamiliarize the way that these categories are, are set to look into them again and look into their complexities and not miss out on things that are considered inferior or guilty pleasures as, again, as just fluff. Because I think that my project in this book is, again, to do what many other important feminist scholars before me have done in talking about uh, soap operas and melodramas and women's novels and chick chick flicks and chick lit in showing that these cultural categories are not uh, to be looked at only as inferior because of their relation to femininity and to women's audiences or women's issues or women's desires, that very often these correlations are what make them seem as such, whereas the texts themselves can be elaborate and complex 
and offer resistances. And even more so than that, uh, more often than not, they can have complexities that are much more interesting than texts that are considered uh, quality uh, directly because they, they sometimes hide these complexities within the creases of the text. Again, as, as melodrama scholars have shown, that the mise-en-scene sometimes shows something about the emotion that cannot be addressed in the dialogue in, in, a, in a direct way. And so what I wanted to show in this book is, again, the creases within the text and, and the creases that I focus on on the temporal creases. The temporal textuality of these Chick TV texts is complex and it's fascinating. And it's and most importantly, it's political because it works to, again, position women's culture as important and interesting and also to resist the social order in many ways, some more hidden and other more explicit, and to kind of offer this other order, this other narrative order, this other televisual order, other forms of characters, other forms of anti-heroics that are not necessarily constructed exactly the same way as the anti-heroines, as I'm sorry, as the anti-heroes of, of 21st century, such as, you know, the, the, men, the white men, Tani Sopranos and uh, Dexter's and uh, etc. <laughs> so these women offer something different, but it's not necessarily less anti-heroic or resistant or complex. It, it just looks differently. And we need to kind of wear these different glasses to look at them. And so that's, yeah, that's why I think it's important no, perfect. Like, so, you know, it, is the book out yet or is it coming out? It keeps on being postponed. I don't know. It was supposed okay. to be out in the summer. And I'm guessing, I mean, you know, this we had these crazy two years. So I'm guessing everything is backlogged. And then it was supposed to be in December. And now I think they're saying probably uh, February. So I'm really hoping it will be out soon. I think it's very timely and I would be very happy to kind of keep discussing it and have more and more people have the actual text in hand. Mm-hmm. But right, hopefully so soon. Coming, so yeah, so yeah. So usually my like final question is if there's anything else you're working on now or any, you know, but I'm guessing too, you're working on what you're going to do when this comes out, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any last thing you are, you know, looking at or looking into or anything even with this book that you want to kind of promote or put out there. So, yeah. So I think I, uh, my obsession with this tie between characterization and form kind of keeps accompanying me, accompanying me, sorry. Um, and right after I finished um, and I, I sent the, the, the final revision of the book, I realized that I that um, Insecure had just started and I really wanted to talk about this text that I found fascinating, specifically in terms, by the way, of sexuality that we just addressed. So I have a piece about uh, Insecure and this kind of threw me again into talking about um, the ties between uh, authorship and performance, which I'm interested in in writing a, a text about now. And I'm hoping to kind of expand on these relationships between characters and form, kind of try to dive into 
television form and characterization in in many ways and forms and, and perspectives as I can. Great. Well, it's been great talking with you again. This is Yael Levy, who is the author of Chick TV. Thanks for talking with me on New Books Network. Thank you so much, Rebecca. This was wonderful. I thank you so much for the opportunity. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.